0: You are listening to Reach mdxm 233 the channel for medical professionals. The New York Times describes Dr. Katrina Furlick's book, Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, as an engaging tour of human brains and the doctors who cut into them. It is a book for anyone who has ever considered becoming a brain surgeon or just wondered what it would be like to step into the world of neurosurgery. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Greenwich, Connecticut, is my guest, Dr. Katrina Furlick, the first woman admitted to the neurosurgery residency program at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and the author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe. Welcome, Dr. Furlick. Thanks for having me. Dr. Furlick, your book has received praise from the New York Times and from many others. What inspired you to write a book about your experiences as a neurosurgery resident?
1: Well, one of the main things was that I kept a journal during my seven years of neurosurgery training. So as I would go on rounds or be on call, I would I would have these three-by-five cards that I would keep in my white coat pocket, and every time I saw something strange or interesting or heard a little snippet of a neat conversation, I'd write down a few notes and put it in my white coat pocket. And after a few weeks, I'd I'd gather them up and put them in my computer. So at the end of seven years, I had a pretty voluminous collection of interesting stories, and I felt that I should do something with them. So the book was the end product of those notes.
0: And how would you describe the book as it turned out? Well, it's just an insider's glimpse into
1: the world of neurosurgery. And it's really for anyone who has an interest in the brain at all, or in medicine in general. So I've had people who have written to me through my website, who have been medical students, high school students, people who are doctors, and also from all other walks of life who didn't even know they were interested in the brain or in in neurosurgery. So I've been happy to hear from people of all backgrounds who've read the book.
0: Given the demands on your time as a resident, how did you begin the process of writing the book and what were the most difficult challenges as you faced writing it when you were running around with your index cards?
1: Yeah, I started writing it actually once I finished residency. So once I started my my private practice here in Greenwich, I thought, well, looking back at these notes, I you know, I'd like to get something started and in the beginning, I felt all that I could tackle was just maybe an interesting essay or two. So I, I wrote a, an essay using a few of the examples and sent it off to a friend of mine who had written books. And without him even telling me, he sent the essay to his agent in New York, who liked it right away and said, Well, let's meet and maybe I can convince you to actually write a full book. So she then kind of helped me through the uh, proposal process, which is kind of like a business plan to get a book started. And, ended up shopping that proposal around, and there were several people who were interested in seeing me write the whole book. So that's what kind of got me started, realizing that there was the interest out there. That was the beginning. Now, you know, back to the challenges. You asked me about the challenges. The the hardest part was stringing all the ideas together and organizing it into chapters. I I had all the the stories in front of me, but actually organizing seven years of of random anecdotes was, was kind of a challenge.
0: And you didn't really push so much to have this published. It sort of came to you.
1: Partly. I mean, I, I always loved writing, so the idea of writing a book you know, was in the back of my mind, but certainly I, I wasn't thinking of doing it right after I finished residency. But once I realized how much interest there was, that what that's what really inspired me, and I realized, wow, people really would like to hear about these stories, and I might as well get them out there. At the time, I wrote during the evenings and the weekends. I had to ignore my husband at times, so that's why I had to dedicate the book to him. I did get to write during my free time, and it all came together. It took me about a year and a half working part-time, obviously, on the book, to get it done.
0: Do you have any advice to share with other medical professionals who may be considering trying to write and publish?
1: The biggest thing I'd say is to make sure that you get an agent. Even if you have a great idea and you're a great writer, it's still hard to get your ideas to the publishers because they just get so many submissions. And if it's unsolicited and they don't know who it's coming from, It'll pretty much be ignored, is is what I've heard. So having an agent, one way or the other, is really helpful to get your foot in the door. They they know the business, they know all the players, and, and they really help smooth the process out.
0: They do the job of pitching the book for you.
1: Right. And I had a really fun time actually pitching the book. That was one of the greatest couple days of my life was actually walking around New York City, literally walking from one publisher to the other in Midtown, and pitching the idea to editors and the publicity people. It was a lot of a
0: lot of fun. What has been the response of your colleagues to the book?
1: Well, that's a good question because
0: that was my biggest
1: fear. I thought, well, certainly the lay public will enjoy these stories, but what will my colleagues think? Are they going to think that I'm an egomaniac? And especially with the fact that my picture got on the cover, I was not in favor of having my picture on the cover. I actually fought that tooth and nail and they said, well, marketing wants it. And so I said, okay, fine. Anyhow, my colleague's by and large, have given me great reviews. Now, obviously, I haven't heard from the ones that didn't like it, so I don't know how many are out there that didn't like the book. But the only problem was when the New York Times review came out, the title of the review was Maybe Brain Surgeons Aren't as Smart as You Thought. It was a quick way of getting people interested in the review, so I understand why they did that. But I I got a phone call from one of my mentors in Pittsburgh who said, "Uh, I don't know about this New York Times review. It was actually a very good review,
0: but it was the title that... uh... That's not the kind of publicity they (laughs) want. Yeah, exactly. It was humorous. You know, I can see the picture on the cover. I can see why they would want your picture on the cover because I don't know if you look like the typical, what people would imagine the typical neurosurgeon looks like. You're female and attractive and young-looking.
1: They said, well, with medical shows on TV being so popular, it's a quick way of getting people's attention. So I said fine, but you can't use the word brain surgeon. You have to use the word neurosurgeon, and I lost that battle as well. So I was worried that other neurosurgeons would laugh at the term brain surgeon, which is not the term we use necessarily for ourselves.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM 233 the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest is Dr. Katrina Furlick, author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, A Brain Surgeon Exposes Life on the Inside. Were there other areas, perhaps in the content of the book, where you felt like you needed to give in or do what they were asking?
1: You know, luckily, I was pleasantly surprised that the editing process wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. I had two editors when I was writing the book. There was the editor in the U.S. and also the British editor, because they both bought the rights at the same time. So I had to kind of answer to two editors, and occasionally they had differing opinions. Interestingly, the American editor kept pushing me to add more personal information, which I was a bit reluctant to do. She would say, no, make it more personal. Tell little stories about you and your husband. I would say, well, I have some stories, but I don't want to get too personal. And then the British editor would say, the personal stories aren't really relevant. So there was some clash there. But in the end, I went with my gut, and I think it turned out fine. But occasionally there were differing opinions. But that's that's the nature of any sort of creative expression. And that's another piece of advice I'd give is, if you're putting something out there in the public, then you have to expect... A whole range of opinions. Luckily, most of the reviews have been very good. I've had a couple negative reviews, and you just have to expect that. But I think after having gone through a neurosurgery training program, I can can pretty much take anything, including a negative review or two, so that's okay.
0: Yeah, that's much tougher. As the first woman in your residency program and one of very few women in your field, were you hoping to inspire and encourage other young female physicians to consider specializing in neurosurgery? It
1: wasn't my primary goal. I'm, I'm certainly thrilled when I get comments like that, you know, from young women who say I'm inspired, I wasn't considering a surgical specialty but now I'm inspired to try. I am really happy when I see that. I have to be careful about that because surgical specialties aren't for everybody and so I don't want to paint too rosy a picture and I do feel that I painted both the pros and the cons in in my book which was my which was my goal. And I do know surgeons both male and female who are who are disgruntled and consider leaving the field and that sort of thing. So you know, I wanted to paint a realistic picture. But to answer your question, I am happy that the book has inspired women, and I've I've gotten many letters to that effect, and that's been gratifying.
0: And I suppose just adding to information out there for this specialty that just not, not very many people, male or female, choose is a good thing.
1: Right. That's true. It's a very small world. There's only about 4,000 neurosurgeons. So it's, there's a lot of misunderstanding as to what we do, whether we're the same thing as a neurologist, for example. Many people don't understand the differences, and so it is just a way of explaining the field and giving an insiders insider's peek.
0: If you've just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM two thirty-three, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin and my guest is Dr. Katrina Furlick, author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, a brain surgeon exposes life on the inside. The book is about your experience as a resident, but also includes a fair amount of information about brain functioning and disorders of the brain, written in a very understandable way. And this is great for the lay reader. How much do you think professionals in other medical specialties will also learn from this book?
1: Hopefully, other specialists will learn not so much about the brain, because they probably understand a lot of what I've already written about the brain, but more about the sorts of things that we do and and some of the more esoteric brain disorders that we see. But my original reason for going into neurosurgery was that I was fascinated by the brain and the mind, and and I really wanted to get into that as well in some of the chapters.
0: And I suppose for them just to have that peek into someone else's residency experience and just what that's like, it has to be different for each specialty.
1: Exactly. And I've always loved reading other people's insider's accounts. For example, I was partly inspired by a book looking into the culinary world uh, called Kitchen Confidential, and it's a book by Anthony Bourdain, and he kind of gives behind-the-scenes glimpse into the world of fancy restaurants in New York, and you know the ex-cons that work there and wash dishes, and you know really interesting, funny stories about the culture in the kitchen. And it's something I knew nothing about, and I was hoping that you know in a similar way, people with no interest or ideas about medicine would would be able to uh, actually. Get an insider's view.
0: He certainly tells the bad with the good. Do you continue to journal about your experiences? I do, not to the
1: same degree. It's funny in in, you know private practice we certainly see a lot of interesting things as well, but not the same volume and not at the extremes that I saw in residency. I'm in a smaller community hospital and we see a lot of the bread and butter things, but I don't see, for example, maggots in the brain anymore. I don't see gunshot wounds to the brain like I saw in residency there's a little bit of a a different set of disorders that I see now compared to residency.
0: Do you think there'll be another installment in the future about your career as a neurosurgeon? I don't think I'm going to write about my career
1: per se, but I do have an idea for book number two that'll be more of a takeoff on my last chapter, which is called Brain Lifts. And I'm hoping to write more of a nonfiction slash fiction blend where I take what the future of neurosurgery, I believe, is going to look like and then create a fictional character to kind of tell the story. So hoping to reach a broad audience with that, but also bring in some of the brain science.
0: Very briefly, can you talk a little bit about, you had some some sort of imaginings about what the future might be like for neurosurgeons.
1: Yeah, it sounds a little bit far-fetched, but, you know, we already have the technology to stimulate the brain
0: via electrical
1: stimulation or magnetic stimulation, and, and a lot of doctors are already familiar with deep brain stimulation, for example. But there's a movement now to stimulate the surface of the brain. It's less invasive in many ways and the possibilities are very interesting in terms of potentially enhancing memory enhancing language and i can see it taking the next step you know maybe this is 10 years maybe it's 20 years but stimulating the brain to enhance thinking to enhance cognitive function and it sounds far-fetched but it really isn't because we have the technology and it's just a matter of obviously working out the ethics on all the other mess that would go along with that. But I think it is technically possible.
0: And if you write this in the form of fiction, you don't have to worry about the messy parts of the ethics.
1: But I would like to brainstorm about what, what that future might look like and all the complicating factors that would ensue. It is kind of an interesting, brave new world to think about.
0: I agree. I think you'll have a very interesting book on your hands. We'll look forward to reading that. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM 233 the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Katrina Furlick, clinical assistant professor at Yale University and author of Another Day in the Frontal Lobe, a brain surgeon exposes life on the inside. Thank you for the interesting discussion, Dr. Furlick. I enjoyed it. Thank you. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.